let's read our text, Matthew 26. We'll read the first 16 verses. <clears throat> now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these things, that he said to his disciples, <clears throat> excuse me, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it. For my burial. Assuredly, I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You pray with me, please. God, we need to hear you today. You have a plan in this time to redeem every second, and I pray you would do exactly that. That there would be no diversion, distraction, Oh God, but please speak perfect, fluent us and captivate us. Speak into our ears, but also into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds, into our spirits, so that we today could do so much more than gather information. God, we need to not just intellectually ascribe and agree with what's been said here, but God, we need to inculcate it into our lives. We need, Lord, for it to reprogram the way we think so that, God, we could be honest with ourselves before you in total and absolute surrender to be confident today and forevermore, Lord, that not only have you completely redeemed us, but that we have completely surrendered and that we are worshiping the right King and we are serving the right kingdom the way we should. So Lord, today let this day be transformational for every one of us. Let it be revolutionary for every one of us. God, today let your Holy Spirit have perfect work in us today to do your work, God, so that we today could be radically touched and changed and moved the way you desire. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. We commit every moment of this to you and pray, Lord, that you would now just captivate us, draw us in, and may we have fun and be encouraged. But, Lord, more than anything, may we encounter you the way we should. In your word, by your spirit, do your work now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. There is no man who is authority on earth. Only God and His Word is intended to hold men accountable so that they don't create some form of strange apparition of this where in the end of it all, what you have is you're following a man and you're not following the Lord. And we're going to see that in our text. Today I want to talk to you about commitment. Commitment because, to be honest, though it seems like four isolated incidences all working our way then up to Jesus' crucifixion, they all really follow that theme in our text from verses 1 to 15. And there is a fundamental aspect about this issue of commitment. I mean, commitment in its simplest sense, obviously, is a conviction that keeps us on track in a manner that performs or brings it to its proper end. Now, interesting, when I look at Scripture, and if you look up the word commit, do you know where you find most of the time that what it applies to? Sin. It's interesting. It's, you shall not, it's one of the commandments, Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Numbers 5, 6, whoever commits any sin. Ezekiel 18, 20, uh, 26, whoever commits iniquity. Interesting, Jesus would tell us, of course, in John 8, 34, that whoever commits sin is a slave to it. And I find it interesting, it isn't who performs it or whoever just does it, but there's a commitment that's involved that takes us to the performance of that sin. Interesting. Jesus, on the other hand, though we know he was tempted in every way, never committed sin. As a matter of fact, we do know, on the other hand, though he committed no sin, First Peter, um, if you will, 2.22 tells us that. But it said instead in the next verse that he committed himself to him who judges righteously. We know that Jesus would quote from Psalm 31, even on the cross, Father unto you I commit my spirit. And I think it's interesting in our verses here. Because what we really have is this situation that Jesus, we read in our first verse that Jesus now has finished his, his teaching. His public teaching is for the most part over. Jesus will still have a private time of teaching his disciples. I know that from John 14 to 17. 14 to 16 is a very private conversation Jesus has with his boys and then ultimately has his prayer in the garden in John 17. But He's really kind of finished his public ministry in that sense of teaching. And it tells us that. Now, Jesus had taught seven sermons in in, uh, Matthew, of which the last of which we just finished when we uh, finished Matthew 25, when he taught about the end times. So when he finished that, though, he's looking at his guys, and it's interesting that Jesus' commitment, we're going to see, of course, is to the cross, and ultimately, in essence, his commitment is to redeem us, to rescue us, to save us. But while he's doing that, his bullies are arguing over who's going to be greatest, which interestingly enough was Jesus' prior sermon. And really, what's going to become, what's coming sort of clashing at loggerheads here is exactly that. There is this kingdom of God, and then there's this kingdom of man, and the two of them are in brash confrontation with each other, and they're in confrontation in the camp of Jesus. And I want you to consider that before we even dive into our text. That we have the Savior of mankind who tells us he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is his purpose for coming. And yet in his purpose for coming to do that, all of the other guys have in essence come to serve themselves. And here's the weird part about it. These are, if there was ever such a thing as a Christian in the first century, you'd like to think these at least 11 guys were exactly that. And the reason I say that is, is that the foundation of the church Jesus wants to build, as far as the men that he's using, are still men who haven't gotten it right. And they've been with them three, three and a half years. 
You would think after that amount of time, if anything would have gotten through their head, by this point it would be this issue of selflessness, this issue of love as God defines agape love, where it really is a surrender. In the simplest sense, you give your life to give life. And yet, interesting, even in all of that, these guys are still arguing over who's going to be next when Jesus sets up his kingdom. And so Jesus has finished his seventh sermon the Sermon of the End Times 24 and 25. He did a woe diatribe in 23, and then the Sermon on who would be the greatest in 18 to 20. And now it's time to die. And as it's time to die, Jesus shows us the commitment of a kingdom and the commitment of a king. The commitment to a kingdom we see in our first verses, Jesus in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 3 to 5, the religious leaders, the battle of these two kingdoms. And then the commitment to those kings is we see two characters, servants of those kingdoms, if you will. In one case, of course, we see it with the woman we'll know as Mary in 6 through 13. And then in the other case, we'll know the other as Judas. And so we have these two kingdoms at battle, and then we have two servants of those kingdoms below it. And I find it interesting as I start to see this thing in, 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 uh, in comparison, and of course God is contrasting these things right in front of us, I have to start asking myself here in 2017 as we begin this year, who do I find myself to liken more? Now, in church, sitting in a pew or standing up here in front of you, certainly, the easiest thing for me, of course, I'd want to tell you that I'm going to liken myself more to Mary in this situation than I am to Judas. But I have to be honest with you. I'd love to say that my report card, my personal appraisal, is actually a lot better than I think it is. And so understand here, there is a bit of soul-searching But here's the good news. We could leave out of here just totally berated and feeling just diminutive because somehow in all of this we've taken a good look at ourselves and we've found wanting. Or we could actually take it to the cross and surrender it today. The one thing I don't want is for anyone to leave here in the same state they walked in, especially if, you will, that they find a great deal of Judas in in their life. So here it is. Chapter 26, verse 1 starts with this. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. Again, the Sermon on the End, times 24 and 25, was his final, for which he told us, of course, about the faithful servant compared to the lazy, evil servant. And now he says to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man is to be delivered over to be crucified. Now notice in this, there's no if. There's no shadow of variation in this. Jesus is committed to dying. Now, he's he's known for over 1,400 years. God has set this thing in motion as he prepared them for the Passover, originally all the way back in Exodus 12. And interesting, in Exodus 12, there were certain requirements, and he knew those requirements had to be met. But imagine what it would be like to read these things and know that they are, in essence, symbolic and type of you. You're stepping in this, and it tells us for what it's worth in Exodus 12, verse 5, that the lamb has to be without blemish, a male and a year old. Now, a year old may not mean much to you in that sense, but that is a lamb in his prime. has to be a male without fault that is in his prime. And, of course, the first thing Jesus will be identified as from John the Baptist will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if we can chase, we can do a whole study on the Lamb from God will provide himself to be that Lamb in Genesis 22 when Abraham is speaking, of course, as, as his son is asking him, Isaac is asking him, Dad, we've got everything for this worship thing you have except, and don't miss this, it, Isaac is no dummy and he looks at Dad and he says, we've got everything but the sacrifice. And and somehow in Isaac's mind, that doesn't work. 
Now, let me say that again, because I don't want you to miss that. Isaac, in Genesis 22, the word worship is introduced in in English language in regards to the Bible. Uh, In Genesis 22, when Abraham tells the servant, wait at the bottom of the mountain, when he's about to go and, in his mind, kill his son, and he says, because the lad and I, the young man and I, are going to go up and worship. That's what Isaac hears. And Isaac starts heading up this three-day journey with his dad, and he's got the fire, they've got the wood, They've got all of the periphery, but in the mind of Isaac, the most fundamental aspect of worship is missing, and that is the sacrifice. He's like, I I don't get it. We're missing. I mean, we can't really, Dad, can we really call it worship if we're really, there's no sacrifice? And then the next time I see this, and he says, the word for lamb is sech, and he says, Dad, where's the sech? Where is he? Ephosech. Where is the lamb? And the dad says, God will provide that sech, that lamb. And of course, as you read the text, we know that it says that they found a ram, an ayil, very different word, of course, caught in the thickets. And of course, that sets me on that motion. Well, where is this sech? Where is this lamb? The next time he turns up is here in Exodus 12. And there it has to be a lamb that becomes the lamb that becomes your lamb. And that's only in the first couple verses of Exodus 12 as God gives that commandment. And then from there, he's to be slaughtered. He has to be in his prime. He has to be a male. And then the blood has to be put on two very specific things, the lentil and the doorpost. The lamb is to be slaughtered, not in a temple here, but the lamb is to be slaughtered outside of Jerusalem. The lamb is to be slaughtered and then at the doorstep right there, and there's this bloody pool where the, the doorposts, those are the ones that go vertical, and the lintel, which is the part then that goes cross. It's the only part of the doorway, if you will, that's made of wood because it really, doors don't turn on rock very well. So you need a wooden door frame. So if you imagine God all the way back in Genesis 12, 800 years before crucifixion was invented, You are painting on the front of your house two bloody crosses and a pool of blood in between them. And this is somehow going to save your household. The next time I start seeing a lamb is in in the book of Leviticus, if you will, where I start seeing him as the lamb to be slaughtered as a sacrifice for your sin and your trespasses. And I get how God starts to move me forward. But the difference is I read that and I can look now and go, well, that's Jesus. That's clearly Jesus. But what would it be like to be Jesus and read this and go, oh, man, this is me. And he's sitting down with his his guys again. And I want to remind you, he's sitting down with guys who are still trying to debate over who's greatest. And and the greatest in the kingdom of God is sitting in right in front of them. That's Jesus. And he's looking at them and he's like, you know, if you, it's kind of, imagine Jesus looking at us and saying, if you want to call yourself Christian or Christ-like, you should probably be like Christ. How weird is that? And Jesus goes, what part of this example are you following? He goes, guys, listen. You know that the Passover is coming. As you know as the Passover is coming, i got to die. This whole thing, as God tells us in Exodus 12, is an everlasting covenant. This is a testimony that rings true for eternity. And as I look at that, I realize that 
the pressure Jesus must have had must have been so immense. Because we really was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Which tells me temptation is not sin. Because Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. But if he was tempted in every way, was Jesus tempted by lust? Was Jesus tempted by selfishness? Was Jesus tempted by anger, by gossip, by rage? If he was tempted in every way, he was tempted in every way. Jesus said no to every base sin. Are you aware of that? Because all he had to do was say yes once and he wouldn't be our sacrifice. Imagine the pressure of actually having to be perfect. Not just kind of creating some weird scenario in your mind, but I mean genuinely being at this place where you're like, you know what, I, I, can't, I can't blow it once. If I blow it once, the entire universe will die. Imagine that kind of pressure. I wonder why he caves in in the garden. And yet in all of that, Hebrews makes something really clear to me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame. The only reason why Jesus would do this is because he loves us. And because he wants us. And his commitment was to completely surrender to the will of the Father, which, by the way, we know there will be that in the garden where we, Jesus does break down and he'll say, but not my will, your will be done. My commitment is, in the end of it all, not my will, but yours, Father. Because your will is to save everyone. That's the Father's will. What the Father really wants is to save everyone And imagine being blindfolded and punched and not firing back. To be honest, it's still beyond me. You could be really thankful I'm not Jesus for a million reasons, and that's one of them. Because the moment someone has said, tell me who hit you now, oh, I would have said every dirty secret I had known, and then I would have ripped every atom off of them one at a time just for fun. You can tell that God's not done with me yet. And I realize in all of this, I have a Savior who is committed to not being blindsided by death, but surrendering himself to murder. But a murder of complete injustice so that this guilty soul can walk free. And I look and I think, how much of me really even wants to be like that? You realize then, the more I'm going to look like Jesus will be, the more that I'm mistreated. Because the more that I'm mistreated, falsely accused, the more that I'm, in essence, in any way, shirked or or ostracized or whatever for something false. And I don't fire back the more I look like Jesus. It's harder to look like Jesus when, to be honest, when there isn't some form of injustice going around. I mean, who wouldn't want to look like Jesus if what you were doing is just waving your hand over people and everyone got well? You taught a sermon and everyone just, you know, lives were just transformed. Who wouldn't want that? But what separated Jesus from everyone else wasn't the fact that he taught, or even for that matter, that he even healed. Although, let's be honest, his healing was certainly infinitely grandiose in comparison. But it tells us, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered, leaving us an example 
that we should follow in his steps. So when he was persecuted, he didn't respond back in like manner. He says, but actually, even when he was abused, he did not threaten, but instead he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And I realize, I'm called to follow in the footsteps of the person who actually had all the power to exercise and chose to forfeit it all because otherwise I'd go to hell without option. And people go, and then of course you always have the reasonable mind that throws it back at you. Well then, what, are you going to be like a doormat? Might I suggest you're actually going to be like a floor. People are going to walk on you? Yes, they are going to walk on you. But it's not your job to fight that. Aren't you glad the floor isn't tired of you walking on it? I mean, some of us have older houses, and I think there are times where the floor actually likes to groan as you step on it to let you know that it's, you're not the first foot that's ever walked on it. But the best floor is just a simple, straight, solid one you can stand on and you're not going to fall on. And I can tell you this. Jesus didn't just suck it in. He handed it over. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. It's the Father's job to do that, and Jesus knew that. And I guarantee you, none of us will suffer like Jesus did. So there's this committed king. And then God throws in the face of that the comparison of the man's religion that we see, which in essence really is conceded down to a place where it's really based on the world. So this is then, verse 3. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people, they'll become very prominent in Jesus' crucifixion, assembled at the palace of the high court. Now, high priest, now stop, stop, stop. Did you catch that? Does there something sound weird to you? Because it really does to me that the term that is listed here is the palace of the high priest. Now, look, would it be weird if you were to say, hey, you guys, we're going to actually invite you over to our house, to our palace, you know, the holiday palace. Something sounds wrong about that to me. But can you see, you know, who lives in a palace? A king lives in a palace. And I remind you, Matthew, focusing on Jesus being king, compares here the worldly kingdom of the religious system of the day to the homeless kingdom of Jesus on earth for an eternal home beyond. Jesus says, and I remind you, this is back in Matthew 23, verse 5. He says, all the works they do is to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad. They enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. We might say they love prime opening tickets center. You know, they get whatever they want. West End is open to them at that point. You know, they don't have to get a reservation when they walk into the restaurant. Oh, they love it. Well, who is that? That is a celebrity. That's a king. That is a king who walks in and then just just assume that if he's going to be there, you're going to have to kick someone off of a table and give him the table he wants. And Jesus warns us about such a person. He says, oh, they love to be adulated and honored. And you realize the high priesthood had a lot to lose. But in man's sight, they had everything to lose. But in God's sight, they had even more to lose. And they were already losing it. See, the one thing that the people really, the religious leaders really wanted, the thing that they kept trying to keep, was adoration of the people. Did you notice that? I mean, here's the scary part. I can look at this and think, well, to be honest, I don't think I'll ever even be in a position like this to have this kind of money and this kind of favor. And Although I'll be honest, God does the kind of, He does that with me a lot. He gives me the 
parking spot and the free openness. And whenever you walk into one of those places that has like four seats and the moment you're going to turn around, they get up and leave. And I'm like, God, you are so cool. And I get that often. People will say, how did, wow, I guess you got your seat. And I'm like, God does that stuff for me all the time. But when I look at the base point of all of this, I realize it tells us here that this, these people have assembled in the one place where there's a lot of room, the palace of the high priest, and his name is Caiaphas. By the way, for what it's worth, Caiaphas means cutie. How's that? And they plotted, notice it says, to take Jesus by trickery and kill him, but they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And, and Jesus here, he's telling us about his total and absolute surrender, and yet with Jesus' total and absolute surrender, these people... Play this out in your head for a second, the conversation these guys are having. They've met at this guy's palace. So I don't know, I just kind of picture sort of almost like the high priest's name isn't Caiaphas for the moment. His name is Corleone, you know. He's like, oh, we have a problem here. What are we going to do with this carpenter guy? But notice it wasn't like that their plan was to humiliate him or discredit him because it seems like no matter what they try intellectually, it's just not working. And these were the intellectual giants of the day. And so what they got at the end of it all is, you know, we have to do the only thing we always are really good at doing. We need to kill them. We need to figure out how to trick them or to figure out some other way to get into this thing. <coughs> but we can't kill them in front of the people. We have to make it look like an accident. What are you going to do? Because if we do it in front of the people, we'll lose the reason we're doing this in the first place. And I'll be honest, it's one thing if I just think that what they're really trying to do is stay rich. Or if what they're really trying to do is trying to keep a palace. Because that doesn't relate to me. At least, because, although I'll be honest, kings 300 years ago don't live remotely as well as the poorer portion of London, let's be honest. The thought of a microwave. Compare that alone. But the thought that what they really want is they don't want to lose the affection of the people, the respect and adoration and affection. Well, that actually hits harder. Because that actually is something I can relate to. And I, I can't even imagine. I mean, Jesus knows that every person's going to flee from him. They're all going to scatter. They're all going to turn on him. And Jesus is still loving them. And he knows they're all going to bail on him. And these guys are doing everything they can to try to keep their stranglehold on people. And I understand why Paul says, look it, if I really wanted to be a servant of men or a, a man pleaser, I wouldn't be a servant of the gospel. Because I don't think you can really be both. And I wonder how much of what I do really drives me, and I can't help but hear again what Jesus said in Matthew 23 when he says, hey, let me warn you about these guys. They do everything to be seen by men. Everything about their religion is for you guys. It's not for me. And this is God speaking, Jesus speaking. And he's like, you know, look, at, I, 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 can, I can weigh this thing honestly and tell you that everything they're doing is a performance, and unfortunately, I'm not even invited to the show. And whether I show up or not makes no difference. Because the whole thing really is about whether or not people are there to really notice. I wonder how much of my, like, 
How much of my prayer is really private? How much of my reading time is really private? Where I just want to know God better and that's why I'm in the Word versus, well, I've got another study and I want to prepare for it. When God has blessed us, I, I mean, believe me, I'd have a study every day and then some. And one of the reasons is I know that puts structure to my life to help me get in the Word more. I would be in the Word otherwise, but I don't know if I'd be in the Word that much. I mean, I'm just trying to be transparent with you. And I look at these guys, and they're like, we need to kill them. But we have to kill them in a way so that we don't lose the people by doing so. Let me ask you, is it the reason why we don't share Jesus with people? Is it the reason why we're kind of afraid to really let them know how full on with Jesus we are? Because if we were really committed they really wouldn't matter who said yes or no in regards to who wanted to be our friend or who unfriended us that's a new term now who stopped following us now forgive me but I feel really old because I look at and I'm an outsider still on a lot of things and I watch things that I, I, I can't help but inspect them as I view them one of the things, to be honest, is I, I've watched a bit of football lately, European football. That's really where you use your foot most of the time. I think it's more reasonable to call it football. But the thing that I've watched a bit is I've watched what happens with the guys when they get goals. And it's, there's something really, and it, you could totally disagree with me, but I see something really, really desperate in this needing of affirmation and confirmation. I mean, they just kicked a goal. You'd think at a moment like that, like, check me out, I just did it. But there's this hugging and this, this just, and I, and I watch it in a lot of sports. It's not just European football. But this idea that it's like, if I could just do that, then I would be important. And how far will we go for that? And then go to hell or watch everyone else go to hell and it wouldn't matter to us. Whatever the goal is for us. If I could just kick that thing in, just become the best this or do this, whatever, whatever, because in the end of it all, if I could just do that thing and if I could just hear that applause and oh, if I could just, and they're all looking at me and oh, and you know, and then my buddies, the guys that I'm on the field with and they all come over and they hug me in weird positions and we do strange rituals and all that and I, and I oh, I mean, it's like not just these strangers, but my Friends and they're like, we're so glad you're on the team. Cause check you out. And I, how much of my life would be driven by that? And then the Lord could come back at this moment, and I would be like, everything drove me to that instead of really even wanting you to know that you have a choice to make about the Savior. And as I look at these two kingdoms in conflict, I realize the real difference is who's just in the center of it. I mean, in Jesus' kingdom, God's in the center of it. And because God's in the center of it, his will goes. His word's the final word. And things that are in conflict with that ultimately have to die. And then I look at this world, and this is a world that you have to fight to keep because unfortunately it's a worldly world. And because it's a worldly world, it's going to decay. And so you're going to spend all your time trying to prop up something Hey, look at I'll never have the athletic athleticism I had back in my 20s or even 30s. I know you're probably thinking, wait a minute, aren't you in your 30s? Well, anyway, uh, yeah, that's funny. Anyways, 
And I look at Jesus, and he's been preparing me for this this whole time. He's, I mean, when people are saying, I'll follow you, and he says, listen, buddy. And again, loose paraphrase, it's, it's Matthew 8, 20. Foxes have, have holes, birds of the earth have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If you really want to follow me, you realize you are adopting an entirely different kingdom than the kingdom of the world. It is going to be contrary in so many ways. Your mind's going to just ooze out of the side of your head if you really give it enough attention. And I get why then Jesus would look and he'd say, look at, you know what? You're not of this world. Because my kingdom's not of this world. My servants don't have to fight here. This isn't about grabbing weapons. Though guys who do that to further their religion are clearly fighting for a worldly kingdom, not an eternal one. That's what Jesus tells me. When I look at all of this, I just think, God, you've got to rip this out of me. Because this is what was ingrained in me before I came to Christ. And unfortunately, there's just still, if you will, echoes and remnants of that old kingdom still trying to make their way into the new one. And they, they just don't reconcile. So as I look at these two kingdoms, on one side, and I know this, there is a surrender. The demand is surrender. The demand is not self-deprecation, but the demand is self-surrender. To, 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 do, to do, deny myself, to pick up my cross daily and to follow him. But if I pick up my cross, who is not going to want to spit at me if I pick up my cross? Because if I pick up my cross, I'm openly confessing that I deserve death, that I deserve to be crucified, and I do. And if I'm not going to really be willing to do that, Jesus says, you're not even worthy of calling yourself a Christian at that point if you're really not willing to lay down your life to deny yourself. Because how in the world are you like me when you're actually still coming to be served? So that really plays out, to be honest, with two characters here. Obviously, the latter character is Judas, and we'll see that in a moment. But for the sake of time, at least I want to develop this. And, 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 I, and we're going to walk through this, but I want us to kind of grasp the gravity of what he's telling us here. Because I meet two servants, one of each kingdom, the God-centered servant, and then there's the man-centered servant, the me-centered servant. Verse 6 tells us, by the way, then, then Jesus was at Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper. Stop. You know, any of you immediately kind of fill in the gap here and go, well, he's probably not a leper anymore. Jesus is at the house. Clearly, the guy's probably not a leper anymore. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us that. We can assume that that would be the case. But one thing is for sure, whether Jesus heals the guy, delivers the guy of leprosy or not, the house is still quarantined. Because the house is quarantined, if you're going to go into the house, you're going to be quarantined because of it. And that's the place we start this. Now, Matthew doesn't have to tell us that information. He could have just said Simon or that he was in Bethany. We don't even need, I mean, it isn't like I plan on visiting this house. It isn't like there's a church built called the Church of the House of Simon the Leper, although there probably is, to be honest. <clears throat> but if I'm going to be honest about it, why does he even tell us this? He tells us this because what he really wants us to know is even to be there is already a choice where something inside of you goes, oh, I'm not really sure I should be here because being here is going to make somebody look at me dirty. Gonna make somebody look at me different than when I walked in before this. Because walking into the house of Simon the leper tells us this is the untouchables. This is the place where we don't go. But if I'm gonna be with Jesus, there's no place that's gonna be dark, and there's no place that's gonna be dead if Jesus is leading me there, because he is life and he is light. So how could it possibly be either if I'm following him? So here we are at the house of Simon the leper, and I wonder how many people are uncomfortable in this situation. Definitely, I would assume Judas, if no one else. 
And it tells us a woman came to him having an alabaster flask a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Did you notice she was never asked to? Never before this point have we read the word alabaster, or for that matter, have we read the spikenard aspect, and we'll read it in regards to, excuse me, Jesus' ministry. Nowhere did Jesus drop hint bombs. You know, where he's like, you know, wouldn't it be awesome to smell like spikenard right before you die? Or, ooh, spikenard. That just really gets my juices flowing. Oh, if I could pray and spikenard was in the air. Woo, man, my prayer life would just skyrocket. I mean, nowhere is Jesus dropping those kind of hints. So where in the world did this suggestion come from? It came from a heart that was adoring God. And actually, if you will, it came from somebody that was in love. Do you notice that when you're in love, it's almost limitless the suggestions that will come to your head that you would never have thought to do before that. Now, I'm not a big coffee fan, uh, but I'm not telling you it's from Satan or any of that. But it is amazing how often the people at Starbucks know me because my wife likes Starbucks. And because of that, I'm very frequent to visit. And even when I'm not there, you can almost always assume if I'm out for a while and my wife hasn't left the house, she'll get that kind of text. SB, she knows that doesn't mean Santa Barbara. She knows that means Starbucks. You're interested. Now, the reason I say that is, it's just what love makes you do. I would never have considered becoming such a tenant to such an establishment under other circumstances. But because it's important to her, it's important to me. And I can't help but think that this particular girl... She has something here, by the way, that kind of makes her really kind of pricey. But what we do read, by the way, in Mark, is he actually gives us an appraisal of the price of it. It says in Mark 14:5 that it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii, in essence, if you think about how many days the average person is supposed to work, we're not talking about people who work by evil despots and that kind of thing. But, we're, you know, they're kind of where you're, you know, or you're in union, you might work less. You might strike half the time. But, but in, in that, basically, this is a year's salary. So now we're looking at roughly 42,000 pounds. Uh, and you're thinking, who makes that? Well, I don't know. Someone must be making a lot more than that because that's supposed to be the average in London. But I think, wow, imagine carrying something in a little jar that's worth 42 grand. A jar like this. So this is uh, alabaster. It's made from a specific clay and a materials, which, by the way, gives it sort of this glass-like material, uh, that kind of opalesque, if you will. And inside this particular uh, alabaster jar is spikenard. I want you to know I've had this particular spikenard for, what, about 10 years? I think it's about safe to say. Uh, and so this is what I want to do. Uh, let's see, who do we go with? Bruno, pick a number between one and seven. What's that? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I'm sorry. This isn't like a card trick or something, yeah. Give me a number. Five it is. All right. I'm just going to do five sprays, but I have to make sure that, okay. There you go. Two, three, four, five. Raise your hand if you can smell it. Okay, we'll wait. Now, the difference between this room, of course, and many rooms is 
it's Arctic in here. We're aware of that. And that tends to not let things aerate the same way. Can you smell it yet? No. I can smell it up here. Poor Julie, she's kind of... Yeah, they're going to start waving it over. Here, I'll just do this. I'll stand far away from you so that at least you can kind of get the idea. Now, here's the reason I say that. You can kind of guess... Can you smell it yet? Are you, are you olfactorily challenged? just want to make sure. Yeah. Uh, I've never had anybody ever in a service say that they couldn't smell it. That's, okay. Uh, the reason I say, now you know what's going to happen, Reverend Paul from the church here is going to come in. He's going to win. what in the world are you doing in there? Uh, are we, okay, so we sprayed in fairness six sprays in a room that's obviously a very, very large room. Now, imagine if you will, we didn't do six sprays, but we did an entire jar. Jesus has already prepared himself for the temple. We know that he's taught in the temple already. And what that tells me is, is that Jesus' the ritual of purification has already taken place. In other words, Jesus isn't going to bathe again until he's crucified. It isn't like they have running water or, for that matter, that they have you know, some public bath or something. They have mikvahs for which Jesus would have done to prepare himself to enter into the temple. Now, why do I say that? I say that because that means that if Jesus has been doused with this particular perfume, he's going to smell it all the way to the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but to be honest, maybe it's because God gave me such a huge snoz uh, nose that, that smell is really important to me. And I know that there's something unique about smells that they connect to memories. They connect to sensations. Matter of fact, I can, I usually, and I'm kind of big on this, like I kind of have certain, you know, like I'll pick a cologne or whatever, that'll be like, this will be my winter one. And if I ever wear it after that, I'll always be reminded of the, that winter. And so there are sweet memories that kind of rise up with these things. And so the idea of it is I'm, I'm, I'm attaching in a weird way, I'm putting memories in a bottle. So it's like there are certain times where it's like, okay, it's been kind of a weird week. It seems really rough. I have a particular thing. It's like spring. That was a really good time. I'll put it on. I'm like, ah, it just reminds me of the, how hopeful that season was. And the only reason I say that is, is Jesus has this brief moment here. Well, that's going to last him for the rest of his earthly life that is going to involve this smell. From this point on, this smell is going to be attached to Jesus. From this point on, two days until the Passover, Jesus is going to be crucified. They're going to gamble for his clothing. Have you thought that about, thought that through? What does that mean? If they gambled for Jesus' clothing, what was Jesus wrapped in? Linen. And what was underneath the linen as Jesus was put in the tomb? There was really nothing underneath that linen. So when you go and you visit the empty tomb and there's still the linen cloth lying there, is there something kind of weird to you about that? You kind of think, well... The last thing I think you'd want to do if you're going to really try to take a dead body is why unwrap it? Why pull it out of that body cast when you know there's nothing underneath it? Well, for what it's worth. Here's the point of it all. Is that it tells us, by the way, that there is this person pouring forth this. Now, they cannot meet this out. They cannot just kind of crack a little open. You can see the jar. The jar is the kind where it's like anything of its sort, like ceramics, if it's going to break, it's going to be broken for good. There's no way that this thing is going to be put back together. And so this thing is, in essence, kilned in such a way so there's a top on it that then gets sealed. And as it gets sealed, this, the scent stays in it because the scent is so strong 
that you have to keep this thing completely sealed. You can't just cork it because even the, it'll make, it'll aerate through the cork. So the reason I say that is, is that this this person when she's pouring this, it's done. Now I want you to consider what in life right now could be something that if you allowed God to break it, it would just be done. There would no, there'd be no going back to it. There's no leaning back on it. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, six years ago, seven years ago, when we left America to come here to plant a church, it was broken. We weren't going back to this beautiful little central coast area that was, in essence, our little utopia, because we knew that when we were leaving there, it was done. And we kind of knew at that point, it was our, at least is, for one, it was our alabaster jar to break at the feet of Christ. And I know, and here's the beautiful part about it is, is Jesus wouldn't be the only person to enjoy that if they were God-centered. Anybody in the room that loved Jesus would look and go, oh, look at the pleasure it's bringing him, and that would be enough. If what we were really doing is what we really had a heart to do was to make Jesus smile. And if I wanted God happy and my wife broke that before him, would I be upset? I would just be pleased that it pleased him. And that was where the room could have gone. The room could have gone to where everyone was like, wow, that was such a great thing. But... If we associate it in a selfish way, that smell will stink from that point forward, and we can't even escape it. How can we follow Jesus and not smell this from this point on? And this is what the Bible tells us. That it tells us in John chapter 12, as he tells his side of the story, in verse 4, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said... Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then it says in the next verse, so you have no space. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. And this was the idea. Now, I want you to notice in Matthew's account, he tells us all of the disciples piped in. Do you know what that tells me? One person can steer a room away from God. One person driven by a self-centered me first can take the most beautiful act of worship and turn it into something profane and abominable in the sight of men. Think that through. And we're not talking about guys that just bumped into Jesus and this was their first encounter. We're talking about there is nobody on the planet that had more experienced time with Jesus than these guys. Who could be steered Who is least likely to be steered away from Jesus than these guys? And here we are in this room, and this girl, now assumingly this is her dowry, which means it's the one thing that dad often brings into the the marriage, if you will, to sweeten the deal. This makes you even more valuable, if you will, which means all of, if you will, that was her bottle of self-esteem. And I want to make that clear here. This was the thing that made her something. This was the thing that made her valuable. This was the thing that made her marketable. This was the thing that in the sight of the world gathered her followers. And she broke it without return. And it says when she did, the whole house was filled with the scent. Nobody 
and that house wasn't going to be affected by that girl's, uh, that girl's act. And the issue wasn't her at that point. But what was amazing is, among the closest followers of Jesus, how she was going to be humiliated because of one person. And that one person was enough to steer the rest. And why was he upset? Because if he had had it, he would have had some. Now, it sounds to me like maybe they've already sold other things. Maybe this wasn't the first time that something could have been sold that helped, if you will, sponsor Jesus' ministry. But the most amazing part to me is that Jesus didn't want it. He didn't want the money, and he already knew that Judas was a thief, and it tells us he was a thief from the beginning. And you need to recognize Judas never was a Christian. Judas never was a genuine follower of Jesus. He physically followed him, but his heart was never there. See, let me make it really clear. This is how it simply bounces into clarity. Jesus, for Mary, was the end. Jesus, for Judas, was the means to an end. And there's the difference. And I've got to be honest with you. We could play church all day and still make Jesus' means to an end. Like, Jesus, give me peace. Jesus, give me love. Jesus, give me hope. Jesus, give me... And look, at those things are part and parcel. But if Jesus just gave you those things and he wasn't part of the package, would it be enough? If heaven was just about being well and getting everything you wanted and never being sick and just, you know, everything seems euphoric, but Jesus wasn't there, would it really be heaven? Because if so, then I'm as guilty as Judas. I mean, Mary, what did she have to gain by pouring forth all of this except one thing? And that was Jesus' pleasure. It was the only thing she really had to gain. But do you think for a moment that Mary ever really even considered that she would be condemned by Jesus' followers by doing so? Do you really think that at a moment like that, she'd think, well, probably all the other guys are going to be like, that was a waste. Can I just say, nothing you break on Christ will ever be a waste in his eyes. Nothing. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that other people who are even Christians won't think so. So if your eyes are on man, you will never follow Jesus like you need to. And you'll never allow it to be broken, that which could fill the room. I've got to be honest, this is why it hurts. Because, I mean, I, I think in, you know... There are certain states where you just feel kind of a sense of stupor, so you don't even take inventory, where you don't go, you know, well, I don't know. Do I really even have anything that could be broken? Is there anything left? And would I let it be? No, I'm not telling you Jesus is here to just take away everything that could draw men, because to be honest, he would rather take the things that he has and use you to draw men to him. But again... The point is, is well, who's at the end of the, who's at the center of this thing? Is it you or is it Christ? Because sooner or later, they're going to be driven to something. But I get the idea here that her selflessness was hindering Judas's skimming, and that was the problem. And you know, when you see somebody really, really surrendered, it really is supposed to. It really is supposed to 
inspire others to do the same. You know, people, I think there are people in America who, who look at what we do and think that we're surrendering everything. And I, I can tell you, this could be just as selfish as selfless. You guys are beautiful people. I get to spend time with you. We get to live in a beautiful city. And I just got to make Jesus the center of all of this. How many times does Jesus ever jump in the face of somebody and rebuke them down to defend someone? But he does it here. Even with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus would just toss out a couple lines. He, without sin, let him cast the first stone and let the Holy Spirit nail him from that point on. But if you will, the kind of, the way that this is kind of worded sounds like Jesus really jumped into his face. He was, I mean, and I get the idea here that Jesus was going to, if you will, amputate the cancer of this comment. And he was not going to let you know that he in any way approved of it. So he jumped into this thing and he's like, in his simplest sense, shut up, Judas. What she did was good. And I want you to know that what's happening in this room, people are going to know about for the rest of, until I come back, people are going to know about this. Which is interesting, because in that room at this moment, Judas is starting to make decisions too. And we know them. But in that room, a girl had completely surrendered, because in the end of it all, Jesus was the end, and that's all she needed. But Judas, Jesus wasn't the end. So let's bring this around to the end of our text for the day. This is the poor you'll have with me always, and Jesus would add to that in Mark 17, if you will. You can do to them good anytime you want. But me, I'm not going to always have, you're not going to have this opportunity forever. She did this for my burial, which tells us, by the way, even in the burial, Jesus is going to smell like this. He says, look, whenever this gospel is preached for the whole world, what this woman has done will be a memorial. Jesus has now openly rebuked Judas. And as he's openly rebuked Judas, his pilfering now has been made impossible. He cannot just privately start skimming off the top because everyone's looking at him a little bit differently. And he must, if you will, diversify his investment portfolio. He has to start seeing how he's going to do this otherwise. And so finally we read then in verses 14 to 16, then one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot again, the rebuked. She went to the chief, he went to the chief priest and he said, what are you willing to give me? Stop. You know, there are many, if you, you watch a lot of the Jesus films, especially the ones that are geared towards the young, and they try to make it a little cultural. One of the things that they will actually do is they'll actually try to make it sound like Judas was a zealot. A zealot was somebody, in essence, who hated Rome, really wanted to see Israel restored to its proper grandeur, its proper place, and therefore Jesus didn't, wasn't getting with the program as Judas wanted it, and therefore he finally decided to jump ship and try to find another route to that end. And that's kind of the way they played, even in some of the ones that I really appreciate and admire in some cases. However, scripturally, I just don't get any of that. We do have, there was a guy that was a zealot, Simon, we read in the text, uh, that one of the twelve. Now, it does tell us that Judas was Simon's son. Was he that Simon's son? Well, there's a handful of Simons we already know, and that was one of them. We don't know which Simon's son he was. But he's never called a zealot. But this I do know from Scripture, and I want to make sure that at least what I do know from Scripture becomes the thing that's focal. And that is this, that Judas was a thief from the beginning, he would skim off the top, and that he wasn't maneuvered or, if you will, um, sort of, uh, you know, he wasn't pushed 
by other like uh, religious leaders and kind of coerced in. He wasn't manipulated in. He went in his own full conscience and notice what he did is he went shopping for more money. At this point, Jesus is like, look at this girl spent her dowry in a beautiful way that you should not miss. Judas, you're not doing that. Judas was still about getting. And when he was rebuked, he just went to go find money elsewhere. That's what the scripture makes clear. And did you notice? He went to the chief priests, the religious leaders, the elders, the people, and he went to them and he said, so what will you give me? You see what he's doing, right? He's pricing out his betrayal. Here's the most amazing thing. Is that Zechariah makes really clear for what it's worth in Zechariah 11 that Jesus, the Messiah, would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. If I were a religious leader and a teacher of the law and I had any experience in Zechariah, 31 would have been fine. If I really didn't want to prove, I mean, if I really wanted to prove Jesus wasn't the Messiah, one of the things I could have done was just given him one more simple, lousy silver coin. But what was clear in Scripture is not only was this guy having to get 30 pieces of silver, ultimately he would throw them back and they would buy a potter's field with it. So we'll know that that's a little spoiler that that's going to happen. Judas is going to throw the money back at him. He's like, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they're going to say, so what? That's your problem, not ours. And then they get the money back and they're like, well, this is blood money, so we can't just put it back in with the rest of it. So what are we going to do with it? And somewhere down the line, someone goes, we should buy a potter's field. And nobody of all of the guys that are supposed to be, all of the theologians are in the same room and none of them goes, oh, you know, Zechariah kind of said that's what we would do, 30 pieces of silver, potter's field. Nobody thought maybe they should buy a restaurant or they should give it to the poor. Or they, I mean, anything else would have blown the scripture. <laughs> Yet in all of that, there is a soul that has been following Jesus for at least three years. They've they've watched him be tender to the needy, to the cleanser to the leper, raiser of the dead, healer to the sick. And in all of this, this wasn't enough? Savior of the world? Open to any person. He would go to the house of a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile. And yet in all of this, this wasn't enough? Because the one thing that Judas wasn't getting now was paid enough over the top. Don't you find it interesting that Matthew's recording a bit of this? And that was Matthew's old job. What Matthew used to do was skim off the top. That was his job. You'd have thought Matthew would be the one guy going, you know, I've kind of noticed something with you. It's a little bit strange. You seem to be having a lot of fresh stuff here that nobody else has gotten. I mean, what do you do if you follow Jesus for three years and you're homeless with him and you're walking with him? What do you do with the money? What are you doing with it? Hiding it in caves that you'll go back to later? Buying yourself fresh sandals every couple weeks? How in the world is it going to make you any different than the rest of the guys you're following? What do you do with it? And here's the crazy part. Because you could spend all your time going, I just need to get this. And then you get it and you're like, no, what even can I do with this? And they're like, you know what? Huh. Well, you wanted to pull them aside and kill them. When you showed up, you look like the face of opportunity. Perfect. 
We want him dead. The price of a savior is the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver was the price he paid for a slave. And I look at this and I think, God, if there be anything in my heart that reeks, resonates, sounds like, or echoes in any manner like Judas, please don't, don't let it live. Rip it out of me. Judas was doing the opposite of Mary. Mary was breaking it all at his feet, and that was enough for her, was his pleasure. Judas was trying to put it all together and recollect it and figure out how he can get more. So this is what it looks like. And we know the text from Matthew 10 when Jesus says, if you really want to seek to find your life, you're going to lose it. And the idea of it is, if your whole life is investing in this world, how in the world could you think that you actually have some form of claim to the next? Matthew 16, 26, I think he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But if you want to hand this one over now, you're going to find real life. But I've learned this. If your hands are full of something already, well, then there's no room to grab anything else. So let me ask as we get ready to pray, which person is really... I'm not talking about the, the places where we could just openly blurt out things that seem with such great spiritual bravado, but I'm talking about choices, because choices, the choices we make are what really testify which of these characters we are most like, Mary or Judas. Hey, Judas was just the servant of another kingdom, but it was a kingdom that was bound to fall. And Mary was just the servant of the king of kings. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it to be, did not consider it robbery to be called equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found as an appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He goes, this is your mindset. This is the mind you need to have. If you're going to call yourself Christian, then have this mindset. Jesus had everything, and he let it all go. Because you were worth it. Because even though he knew you would betray him, blaspheme him, me too, mock, misrepresent, betray, hurt, annoy, it didn't stop him because he was committed. He was genuinely, wholeheartedly committed. And where does my commitment stop? A betrayal? A disappointment? See, what Jesus knew was that the cross was only a corridor, right? Not the end. The cross was the payment, but the resurrection was a new life. 
I think what Mary knew was is that even though she was, in essence, forfeiting the dowry that would get her married off, it's because her heart already belonged to someone. Because her heart already belonged to someone. He was the end. He was on the other side of the cross. He was the thing that was the new life, and that was what she was embracing. So she didn't matter about the old life. She let the old life die. That's okay. I know that that takes a lot of faith. I know that takes a lot of faith because what we're doing is, in essence, look at the one thing I am familiar with is my past. I'm familiar with that. I've lived that. I know that. I can walk you through that. I can tell you about the old life and who I was, but the new life, I don't know. I can't tell you what's in front of me, but I can tell you that if Jesus is the end and I'm holding on to him, nothing else really matters anymore. So, beloved, I just want to say today, what if we laid down our lives and said, all right, Lord, it's yours now. I'll give it to you. What would happen today? Will you pray with me, please? Jesus, thank you for leading the volley here in this chapter. Showing us that you too are a good and faithful, the good and faithful servant. And how you were committed to the cross because in essence it was not only essential, but it was exclusively my only hope. And there at the cross, you knew that all my sins could be paid for and knowing that my sins could be paid for. And I understand why there at the garden where you would say, there be any other way. But be it that there was no other way. Your commitment wasn't to the cross as much as to my saving. And therefore, because there was no other way, you were committed to the cross. Surrender and sacrifice. foundational fundamental and I confess to you that much of what's called Christianity doesn't look selfless it doesn't look surrendered it doesn't look like you are the end of it but rather you are the means and I can't change the world around me without at least letting you first change the world in me and then being an instrument of your an agent of changes you choose to advocate so Lord I pray today Lord, that whatever needs to be broken, you can break it. Even if you just want to reallocate it, Lord, I just want to say, please, today, please. Please, God, don't let me be a Judas. And take whatever is Judas-like from me and slay it. That what's left someone that just pours forth the adoration and love that you properly deserve. Thank you for not just dying, but raising from the dead. And in that resurrection, there is this hope of a new life. And it's this new life I seek to embrace now. So please, in this room, please today, Sift through every area of our life and raise up from this an army of people who are genuinely yours, who would follow you not like Judas did, 
but like a gal who gladly busts the alabaster jar of her dowry to fill the whole room in just one, just one broken vessel be enough to fill the whole room. Make us such agents, such pinnacles of surrender that it would inspire countless millions to hand their lives to you. And let us not live in fear of the retribution of people who are really not of you or those swayed by those who are really not of you. But make us full on as we belong. So God, I just pray today that it's you first. You are the center. And I'm your servant. Please, make this so now. You told me that if I ask anything according to your will, I know I have it. And this, how could this not be your will? So I trust in faith that this will come about now. And for that, I am excited. And I can't wait to see how you're going to blossom this into something infinitely more beautiful and effective. So it's yours, Lord, my life. Do with it as you wish. In Jesus' name. Amen.